0: Alright, uh, ladies, folks, and gentlemen, welcome to the uh, now traditional post-mortem for every campaign. Now, as we've established last time, it was just me, uh, last postmortem was just me rambling to myself for uh, 30-some-odd minutes and then kind of reflecting on everything. But I didn't write this campaign. I didn't even run this campaign. So uh, rather than just uh, actually just have somebody ramble for a while... Let's actually make this a dialogue. So, uh, please welcome to the show, Nagelfar. Put in useless cheering sound effect here in Ashwa. Don't forget
1: to do this in the edit. Uh, So now uh, now there's two of us rambling for however long this is gonna go on
2: for. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, So I kind of just want to begin
0: just by asking, uh, you know, generally what were the biggest inspirations for the campaign like what were the books or the movies or the other campaigns you've been a part of that you were like oh i got to i got to do this now with this group in particular
2: oh i mean that's a that's a really broad question let
1: let let's see if i can answer that uh obviously uh, i mean it's a Book this roleplaying group has heard me harp on about uh, forever. Uh, But uh, A City Dreaming by Polanski is a huge inspiration for just a magical, weird city where everything is uh, intercollected and uh, built upon mystical forces. Uh, It's just uh, uh, that, that was obviously a huge inspiration for me. Uh, if you mind
0: just giving a brief like little uh, summary of what that book is for the audience at home.
1: Uh yeah, uh well, beyond what I have already said, it's about the uh, magician known as M uh returning to New York and uh getting involved in the uh, unwillingly getting involved uh in the politics between the two magical queens of New York uh, and sort of uh, what comes of his magical adventures. The uh, book has a thin red line running to it, but every chapter is its own adventure. And that was probably more or less the theme I was going for here, that I want a thin red line running through uh, everything you guys got up to uh, But that, like, the the most interesting part, really, was sort of the city and how it all connects in the end. It was sort of an overall goal.
0: And, And describing it like that, that definitely does hit a lot on, like, everything that Centralia was. It was definitely, like, you know, it was just a bunch of people end up in a situation they don't want to be a part of, and they have to, you know, sort of play off the relationships of all those powers that be with the Callum Clay mystery, I am assuming being your red line?
1: Uh yeah, that being sort of one of the red lines and um uh, the Lazarus plot line uh being the other one. I think I have here in my documents, which are just going to uh bring up that yeah, the sort of the meta plot was always the sort of significance of uh, Callum Clay and the Return of Chaos and Magic into the World that was always like what one of the biggest aspect uh, uh of the uh, aspects of the plot but of course the other most obvious uh, more obvious uh, metaplot and red line was the uh slowly Increasing tension between humans and, uh, and vampires and other supernatural creatures such as uh, ghouls were the main other supernatural thing in the campaign
0: I kind of noticed this with the uh, with the returning of magic to the world element, but uh I think it's kind of interesting that you've subverted the like, the dying race trope from fantasy
1: like, yeah you know, i mean uh. Uh, it's actually one of, uh, I'm going to holler at another one of my favorite uh, favorite authors, Joe uh, Abercrombie, uh, because that's another inspiration that uh, he and his book sort of uh, is in the process of doing the dying of magic. Uh, but he has said in a few interviews that he'd like to, at some point, uh, subvert that and build that into magic returning. Uh, so, sort of reaching a turning point where magic has reached its weakest point and now it's coming back. Um, so, that's always something I thought was a really fun idea and something, uh, again, I wanted to explore in this campaign. Of, like, we have discovered that psychic powers are real, we have discovered that vampires are real. What are the doors that I don't open? Hmm. Of course, quite literally with the sevenfold. Quite door.
2: literally with this campaign, I was about to say. <laughs>
0: I mean, with this one in particular, it's uh, uh, it, it's quite interesting because of the fact that you know uh, you, you kind that you play into. Uh, I, I don't like comparing things to tradition to uh, to traditional D anD D, but you do tie in the idea of magic being inherently chaotic to some extent, which is uh, yeah. which is interesting because like all. Because uh, we, we once talked about this, but it was like you described to me that all three factions in Centralia in the beginning, you could say were lawful neutral, if we were to use like the traditional alignment chart, but they all had different interpretations about what lawful was.
1: Yeah, so that, I mean, if we're just going to name them just, uh, just for some understanding. So, uh, the mayor, uh, quick, uh, Erica Smith, the leader of the vampires, and uh IMIS and organizations are all intricately orderly and they're all playing the same game essentially. Uh, within the confines of uh, of the law, not only like the law
2: of uh, the city but also the laws of that universe. Which uh then it
0: then it kind of gets interesting then of you know uh, asking the questions about what are, you know, creepy and Lazarus kind of to you. Like, what do they kind of represent for you in the, in the new side tro-
1: oh, yeah. uh So this is really sort of a core aspect of um, how I think about uh, role-playing games, and it's a thought I always have in my mind when I construct uh, NPCs, especially important in- NPCs. Um, And that's the term of uh, um, movers and shakers. Mm -hmm. So uh, you essentially have uh, uh, NPCs such as, well, I mean the big three, um, who are essentially Fundamentally, they're movers. Uh, They move things around, but they don't really add anything new. Uh, They're they're reactive pieces that respond to situations as they arise. Uh, And then you have characters such as uh, Lazarus and Creepy, who are fundamentally shakers. They try to change things. Uh, And they are more proactive in the way that they... Uh, seek the party out and they
2: interact with the world at large Hmm.
0: and so that's going to make it interesting when the shakers kind of become the status quo now like once the shakers are now you know they're kind of shifting into movers if we ever come back to this place it feels
1: like oh yeah if we ever return to Cytralia um Creepy and Lazarus are going to be very different people. Uh, Thomas um, Quick, the mayor, of course, is dead. So he, he's kind of fucked. Uh, Rasmus is dead. But of course, you have Lisa in charge of IMI. And IMI was really always more important as an entity than a singular individual. And of course, Eric ended up uh, running off at the end of the campaign. So definitely if I come back, I could see myself subverting and having many of the Former movers become shakers, and other way around, Uh, because you do have a sort of other place you're coming from when you're uh, protecting what's yours, rather than trying to uh, take what's essentially someone else's. Hmm.
2: Fascinating. I
1: think Lazarus in particular will be a very interesting character in a new campaign. Uh, Chief of police yeah because in my mind uh, i mean if i do end up running it for this particular group uh, i think that the group will have the idea of him as a villain but uh, uh, without spoiling too much
2: i am thinking that he's probably not awful at his job begrudging respect like
0: it's uh, like already, I can imagine it's just uh, like he's so good at his job that everybody who knew him as the asshole he was, like I could easily like imagine, like uh, at least from my perspective, I could imagine like Edgar going, "I hate the bastard,
2: but he gets the job done." Yeah, um, though there's a, probably some assholeness still left,
1: especially in many undercurrents, but. Uh, I mean, uh, that's future campaign or side stories talk, and that's still a fair bit of the future. So it's just loose ideas at this point.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So kind of sticking back to this, and I kind of want to... I really do think that this was one of those uh, observations that uh, towards the end of the campaign that I think was really kind of nice to have to reflect upon. Uh, Do you mind going into uh, what your view of vampires are, like, as a creature, like, what do they present that no other creature can?
2: Oh, yeah, we,
1: uh, we had a short discussion about this, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we did. Uh, I-
1: that I think that vampires are
2: intricately, if done right, uh, in my opinion, of course, uh,
1: should symbolize a sort of anthesis or anathema to uh, life itself. Uh, In in just the sense that so much about vampires is about death uh, and destruction. Uh, Whereas I think uh, a lot of actually being human is uh, building and creating. And vampires aren't really about that. Uh, I remember, um, well, the thing I talked with you and some of the other players about was just the fact that uh, the closest thing a vampire can come to creating is to spawn a new vampire uh, to essentially give birth to something else. And for a vampire to give birth, they have to kill someone. And I've always thought there was a really compelling and interesting aspect about them and something I did want to. Uh, play up in the campaign, that sure, while vampires probably don't instinctively uh, like deserve to die simply for what they are, the fact is they are monsters. Uh, and if you're not really playing up the fact that a vampire is a monster, I think you're doing them an injustice, because that's one of the most compelling things about them. So you'll notice that in the campaign, that whenever I really have a chance to play up your vampiric urges, I do try and really lean into that. Especially when you give into it and actually drink blood, I try to describe that uh, in s. Um, with with the risk of ruining ruining the sh- a child friend in s of this, I I do try to. Uh, explain the uh, uh, blood drinking of the vampire as erotically as I can, while also making it really creepy.
0: That that is essentially the the, the right a- adjective, though. Though personally, I, I maybe this is just me, but I kind of read it as a bit more, you know, uh, animalistic. Uh, as much as we yeah. uh what was it as much as we didn't quite uh, as much as this like whole campaign I think riffs on some of the tropes of, like, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, to some extent. I do think, you, I think you've mentioned that, that that is one of the more interesting aspects that, from that universe that, you've, that you like to toy with, the whole uh, slowly coming to see humans more and more as food, to some extent.
1: Yeah, indeed, because it, uh, it does make sense to me that the older you get, the more people you see passing around you, uh, the easier it becomes to feed.
2: uh, because you do do
1: start making these small concessions with yourself that like uh, you you maybe start off with okay I'll only drink bad blood Uh, and then you go I'll only drink from people who give blood willingly to me to I'm willing to pay people to give me blood to there are certain people who deserves to be fed upon to I
2: deserve to feed on people
0: and, and kind of adding the, you know, the the lack for a better word, erotic element to that only makes it seem much more primal, much more base. I oh, yeah, separate... I, I did
1: say erotic, but it's a very sort of bestial uh,
2: eroticism.
0: Yeah, yeah, like the kind of like, uh, what is it? You know, it, it, I mean, uh, what is it, that psychology model, the four... Four Fs, fighting, feeding, fleeing, and
2: procreation. Yeah. Procreation. Uh, that's the last F. That's the last <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's the one joke
0: my psychology teacher loved to do.
1: Though, of course, with vampires, you can remove that and put in fanging instead. Yeah, you so probably can works.
0: put in fanging.
2: Oh, that's going to evolve into slang, isn't it? Next to leech and... Uh... <laughs> Oh, man. So, uh, kind of uh, uh, straying away a little bit from some of the more symbolic interpretation
0: of the story, I kind of entering into the realm of GM philosophy a bit, I kind of want to know, going into making this campaign, uh, uh, I assume like you already had the idea laid out for what you wanted to tell. But I was curious, how did... Uh, our character creation come into helping shape that story did you like come up with ideas in advance for how you want to challenge each character or uh, did you just want to see where the dice landed and just roll with it from there by the seat of your pants more
1: Uh, all right yeah I, i i think i see what you're asking uh just to begin responding to that i'm gonna say that. Uh, the story I originally wanted to tell were uh, two part, and that was uh, partly how people who didn't expect to become monsters deal with the fact that they're now monsters. Um, that was one uh, that was the more personal part of this story. That was getting you guys to deal with the fact that you're uh, you're these creatures of death. Uh, essentially, that was the the personal plot. Whereas the meta plot from the very beginning was how is the city going to deal with magic coming back uh, and optimally choosing whether to let it in or not. Uh, so those two, from the very start of the campaign, I knew those were uh, those two were the stories I wanted to tell.
2: Then, of course,
1: with the... Uh, with the character creation um that gave me more of an idea of okay how am i going to uh, make you confront the fact that you're now a monster um because everyone responds to that very differently don't they
0: yeah i mean that group alone was initially was so drastic in their responses.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't put the same challenge uh, in front of, uh, well, say, you just to pick two extremes, uh, Madeline and Elias, because they'll respond fundamentally different uh, to those challenges. Like, Elias was always very willing to, a uh, compromise with his uh, humanity uh, to further his goals that was always a very key part uh, of uh, of his character so putting those sort of challenges in front of him would uh, wouldn't have any effect hmm. um whereas obviously putting those um, those short sort of challenges where you have to compromise your morals in front of someone like madeline or edgar um is much more compelling uh, also, with Vitya putting challenges in front of him, where he essentially has to choose: do I lean into my old life or do I try to do something new? Uh, because, of course, he was a Russian gangster uh, in the past. So, sort of, uh, he was already essentially uh, a monster in my, uh, in many ways. Uh, he would already done very monstrous things, and this sort of enabled him to return to a lot of that and. Uh, he did in large part, but he resisted on the stronger points. Hmm. It, it, it's kind of interesting to see
0: how uh, uh, how those four really kind of each represented a lot of major different aspects, which is, I think, what makes that one ep- the one episode where we go to uh, where we plea our cases uh, so powerful that they do definitely kind of play into
1: each other. Oh, yeah, to the vampire council.
0: To the Vampire Council. Because uh, I, I, I think, uh, and feel free to kind of go into it a bit more, but I think with the, with the Vampire Council episode, it was one of the most telling in terms of how each of our characters viewed themselves and as the new monsters they've become. But I think at the end, all of them, like we all embraced it. We didn't choose to become human again.
1: Yeah, indeed. I I do think that's one of the most interesting uh, points of the campaign. The fact that you all chose to uh, not only remain vampires, but sort of embrace the fact that you are a vampire. Uh, I think pretty much all of you uh, at some point uh, stated that you do, uh, in fact, sort of like your new existence. uh, And you don't really want to go back from it. Uh, which I think is uh, another interesting point. I mean, I've always thought in role playing games that uh, power should come at a price, and uh, temptation is uh, a, a very large theme, I think, in a, a, any work of vampire, uh, vampire fiction. So it was cruel cool to see many of the characters give in to t- temptation, but still largely remain human.
0: I think it's telling, actually, that, yeah, a lot of... Like, I think, at least for now, those four are probably going to embrace their vampirism, but not quite go all the way. It'll be interesting I to think, come back to them in a hundred years.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for a rather long while, uh, the um, uh, these four will be a ultimately a force for good in Centralia. Uh which I think is uh it's nice. It's uh I think one of my favorite things about the campaign is though you could argue that the group uh lost because Lazarus essentially got everything you wanted, uh, and they got played rather heavily by Creepy. I think the personal victory of remaining largely good people to the point where they were vi- willing to compromise uh, very important aspects about themselves and move past vengeance for the, be- uh, for the betterment of the city. Uh, I think that sort of personal victory is uh, stronger than any uh, like factual victory they could have over creatures like Creepy or
2: Lazarus. That is actually a very interesting point. Uh, I I think I've never
0: seen, or I've never even heard of, to my knowledge, a a campaign kind of ending like this, where the heroes lost to some extent, but won a major personal victory. Because to me, uh, I, I can't speak for the others. Well, I can kind of speak for Echo. But to me... At least I, I felt as if like this was the right ending, that this was the best thing that could have happened and it felt, you know, correct and satisfying to the story. But, hmm. you know, I'm not certain if we would see that with like other GMs sometimes, you know, like, because you don't really think uh, I'm not aware of many campaigns where it's like, we won the personal victory, but we lost the war. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, had this been an original campaign, like uh, an unoriginal campaign, I mean, a sort of uh, an adventure as all other adventures, you would have ended up convincing Lazarus to fight by your side. You would have defeated Thomas Quick, and then Lazarus would have turned on you. That, That would have been the classical way of doing this. So you still had to kill Lazarus.
0: But Lazarus is still smart enough to, like, not to know that that would be dumb.
1: Yeah. Like, he's been around for a long time. He's been around for almost, like, 1,600 years, something like that. Uh, So he's, like, uh, uh, that's another one of my pet peeves with a lot of vampire fiction, is that the old vampires are are willing to play the long game. But then when victory is close, they lose all sorts of sights of the, of the long game. And they're suddenly willing to throw down um, like thugs at a bar. Whereas so I'm just like, Lazarus almost got exactly what he wanted. Then things started to muddy up. And he, he's in a position where he can go, I'll wait.
2: In 500 years, I'll be even stronger. As I said, yeah, you know, during the final session,
0: we can afford to play the long game.
2: Indeed. Which
0: uh, I think about it, uh, a it's little like
1: more. actually, and that uh, that's another fun thing I wanted to raise: the fact that Vitya essentially said, uh, "I'm uh, I'm willing to sort of work with you as a check against you." Uh, was a large part of what swayed Lazarus to go along with your plan, because <laughs> because now he's like, okay, so you think that you, Mister Thirty Years, some vampire, will be able to be a check on me uh, if uh, if we essentially ally up? See, me being Lazarus thinks that give me three hundred years, and you're gonna be a minion you're going to be one of my strongest allies in 300 years.
0: Which, uh, you got to love vampire timeframes. Just, I, I got time.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially someone who is that that old.
0: Uh, the twist that he was, like, the twist that he was secretly, like, one of the German barbarians at Rome. I, I, I still love that so much. Yeah,
1: it's like, it, 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 it's a fun little fact. It's, like, not something that I think is ever super important for his character, but it does, I think, put some of his actions into light.
0: It just adds enough flavor that I'm like, makes sense.
1: And it's also a sort of tiny excuse for me for the uh, tiny Roman references I put in here and there. It's like Lazarus thinks thinks it's funny, and it's one of the time periods I know about.
2: So it works for me. Uh, uh, which uh that i'm uh, i'm trying to think if
0: uh trying to see if there's anything else i kind of want just to ask you to flesh out about all this but i think we've i think we really are kind of hitting a lot on uh
1: yeah i mean you were asking me um i can expand a bit on that on how my plans changed with the creation of the characters yeah yeah
0: so the, you know did anything change uh... with the creation of the characters in particular cuz like Because I I knew that at one point you were like, I see exactly how this campaign is probably going to play out. But, you know, in those early stages,
1: like... Yeah, I mean, in those... uh, Given the nature of the characters you made, uh, I knew that you would probably swing into pro-vampire rather quickly. Uh... Because at that point, we had two people who were fairly anti-vampire. One person who was very pro-vampire, and two of you were a bit agnostic towards it. Uh, But I also knew that the way that those people play their characters, you guys weren't going to go like, oh no, let's kill all vampires. Uh, I think that was rather obvious from the get-go. I mean, essentially, when you saved Tariq, it was obvious you were not going to go that way.
0: I mean, uh, especially, but... Again, there were like also, you know, like one sort of rogue factor for that first episode that kind of made us safe to reek, but given the how it turned out in the end, it makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh but no, I mean the uh the short answer is the the creation of the characters made me change the campaign a lot, as I think any campaign should change once the characters are created. Uh Because obviously with the ways you made uh, your characters, I pretty much from the get-go went like, okay, so I did have some combat IDs, but I'm going to remove most of those, because the way you made your characters, combat's not really going to be interesting for you.
2: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, I knew that, uh, I mean, uh,
1: especially uh, you and uh, Echo from uh, from the starter player of, play of uh, Madeline uh, gave me a lot of backstory for your characters uh, in the beginning. So I knew that, for example, uh, Edgar having to face his uh, past as a war criminal, uh, that's something that has to happen. And I had to work that into the campaign somehow.
0: Uh, uh, so, uh, continue,
1: continue. Uh, and Madeline meeting her dead husband. I also knew from the start that that was something I was going to have to put in there. Uh, because she very intentionally, uh, or I think intentionally, left it very vague uh, how he died. Uh, which I mean, uh, I think any GM who gets a sort of uh, oh, I have a loved person who died in the mysterious circumstances. I don't use that;
2: is uh, doing a disservice to the players. Oh, uh, I never wanted to feel like I was kind of
0: forcing your hand with the uh, "come on, give Edgar his uh, his sort of redemptive arc." But uh, I, I don't I, think it did fit with. The I story don't think though.
1: it's. Uh, I don't think it's forcing the hand. Uh, I think. Uh, when you have a player who gives you uh, like a solid character backstory, um, I think you're you, you're not uh, really doing your job as a GM if you're not using those plot hooks, um, because it's it's essentially free material, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. You're saying, my character is a wanted man. And I, I I personally feel like if if my DM response to that was, ah, uh, he probably wants to be like any ordinary cop. Let's just go with that. It'd be a bit weird.
0: No. Uh, it, like, <laughs> it's weird to kind of consider it, but Edgar, as time goes on, stops being a cop. Hmm? Like, yeah. uh, I don't
1: know, I just... A, then there's just an observation uh, I mean I think all of you pretty much start out more or less as your professions uh, and then over the course and I, I think this is interesting over the course of the campaign you evolved into adventurers uh, which I thought was interesting because that's not something you see every day in modern
2: day settings
0: Especially modern day settings. I mean,
1: becoming
0: mm. adventurers is kind of,
2: yeah. yeah I mean, not not not, not only that it... you
1: become interdimensional adventurers. It's sort of uh, interesting how that developed. Uh,
0: it, it feels weird because, like, oftentimes uh, when I play in like D anD D campaigns, I get like multi dimensional adventures going it often feels kind of, like, forced and out of the blue. But with this one, it felt like, yeah, this is just the logical next step. Why wouldn't we become interdimensional adventurers? We just won a court
2: case. Oh, yeah. I mean, the key
1: aspect there, I think, is always making your players work for that sort of thing. It, uh, they have to feel like they earned it. Not just like, oh, I'm throwing you into another dimension. And it just feels like, okay, but... <laughs> I was having fun doing what I was doing. Why am I suddenly in the plane of Yith or whatever? It's like, I'm not invested in this place. By making your players earn something, they have to invest. Uh, I think that's uh, another good takeaway for GMs to take. that You might want your players to go somewhere, but to make them go, go to that place, you have to make them want to go there.
0: So, I, I then suppose a a good question to follow it up with is, uh, building on that, so let's suppose there's a guy and, you know, this person wants to make a campaign a lot like yours. What are the, like, what are the things that you think make your GMing style yours in particular? Like, what makes it yours?
2: I think there are two things.
1: And the first thing comes back to what I said about backstory. Uh, and I'm going to build on that a bit here. And that's for uh, everything the players do, uh, like to a reasonable extent, needs to have consequences. Uh, like any time your players decide that uh, we're going to befriend this NPC or we're going to handle this situation uh, by uh, blowing something up or something like that it needs to come back to them um i've always thought that to be a very important aspect of a gmc job. it's to constantly reference back to what has
2: happened before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the uh, second point and the second point is, uh, give your players enough
1: rope to hang themselves.
0: <laughs> oh, that's the the worst part. Is that I completely
1: agree. That's what we did. It's like always give your players an option they know to be wrong, but make it your make it just tempting enough that they're willing to go for it despite knowing that they shouldn't.
2: Yeah, hey guys, you should open this door. I don't want
0: to open that door, it looks bad, but there might be secrets inside. jeez, oh, <laughs> let me in!
1: I think one of the best examples of this campaign was the, uh, the first time the whole group met Ariok. Uh, Because, of course, all of you, I think, pretty much, uh, or at least a good good half of you, had heard about Ariok at this point uh, and knew that he was bad news, Uh, especially him giving Russian in this setting with the uh, vampire enclave. You know that he was probably not a
2: good guy. Mm -hmm. But you meet him, and he is strangely willing to work with you
1: Uh, And there doesn't seem to be any real downsides of working with him. Um, Now, I mean, politically speaking, this should give up warning bells because you know that his end goal is probably not your end goal. Uh, But it's a chance for you to make a friend uh, or at least uh, a possible future ally uh, with little obvious downside. And I think most players put in that situation is
2: tempted to take that. Hmm. And of course, it's the same thing with Creepy. I mean, uh, Creepy pretty
1: much throughout the campaign continued to pull you guys along with his.
2: Uh, if you do this, I have a plan for the next step. Um, to the point where
1: he was so willing to help you guys that you never really question what's his end goal. You knew that he's against the powers that be, but it wasn't until the very end of the campaign that you asked, wait, but what is he going to do once they're gone?
2: You think he's just an anarchist, and then, oh, right,
0: he has plans. So. I, I got to know, then, like, uh, was... So, uh, a while ago, like, early on, you said that Mr. Creepy showed up much earlier than he was supposed to? Yeah. So, what I'm curious about Creepy, then, is... Let me make sure I formulate this question right. It's that Creepy... Kind of knew that we would just kinda go along with this plan of his and probably not really object.
2: Uh, like creepy, much... creepy knew at that point. Um, like um,
1: okay. There's a few like interesting pieces here. It's the fact that uh, the sort of ghoul maintenance worker you ran into uh, into in the sewers who ran away. Uh, they, of course, reported directly to Creepy, uh, which got Creepy interested in the situation uh, because it didn't take too much digging for him to realize he was working on behalf of Erica and Lisa. Uh, and given the nature of ghouls and the fact that there's a lot of them who are powerful psychics, uh, he could discover sort of enough to know that you have uh, you had betrayed both of them. Uh, and it put creep in this interesting position of, uh, okay, here are some pieces that are essentially loose on the board and I don't see
2: any strings on them. Uh, that means they don't really have a choice. So
1: I am going to extend a hand looking all friendly
2: and see if how far I can string them along my agenda. Now, mind you,
0: I personally think Creepy is, uh, until power corrupts, for
1: now, well-intentioned. but uh, He is not evil. Uh, not I e- think that's, uh, that's a core aspect of him, that uh, he is not evil. Uh, however, uh, he does not like
2: not being on top. And, I mean, you know, why wouldn't he from where he's from? Yeah, indeed. Uh, Or, like, more especially where he's going. That's a bit more correct, yeah. So, I
0: kind of uh, began to wind things down here because I'm starting to run out of questions a bit, but uh, we'll see where this takes us. So, what moment do you wish you could do again in this entire campaign so that it could have become better? Like, if you could redo any, like, part of the campaign, what would you do?
1: The main thing that keeps bugging me is that you owned a lot of medical bills, and I never really made anything of that. And uh, I'm always like, I could have made that more interesting, but I didn't, and it got to the point where I just went, I can't really do anything with this with the pacing of the campaign without fucking with the pacing. Uh, so I'm just gonna drop it. Uh, and I'm like, I could have made that more interesting somehow.
0: I'll make but, you a promise right now. If we ever if I if I do the thing where it's possible where we end up inside Trollia for a brief stint I'm going to make a point out of the fact that, to this day, Edgar and Madeline are paying off medical
2: bills. With whatever yeah, the new thing. currency is. Yeah, I haven't even thought about that yet. Uh, money.
0: <laughs> don't, even, don't even think about it too much. Magically
1: just... infused snake scales, who gives a fuck?
0: <laughs> who gives a shit anymore? We could say anything!
1: No, it's like, I think that's one of the sort of main aspects that just comes back to me, that I have a situation there. I could have made it interesting, but I just sort of um, went down on money and, uh, yeah, nothing really became of it. So that's sort of an aspect that comes back to me that
2: I, I could have handled that one better. Mm-hmm. Other than what's... that, uh
1: like i'm fairly pleased with how most of the other things
2: went down actually hmm. yeah so with that then what's your proudest moment of the campaign uh, I, uh again i think these sort of uh questions
1: are really difficult it uh it comes down to uh I think I the told you guys bad
0: questions, but
1: Yeah uh, no, it's not a bad question. It's just I'm bad at responding to them. Uh I told you guys like after one of the sessions here toward the end of I really struggle when someone comes to me and like goes like what's your favorite session? Because I'm always like, Well, the latest session's my favorite. <laughs> because it was awesome and I had great fun. Uh,
2: but my proudest moment. Uh, My proudest moment in, um, like, I'm going to pick two. I can pick two. I mean, nothing in the rule
0: (laughs) says you can't. Nothing in the rule says the dog can't play basketball.
1: So, uh, the first one, this is the one I've mentioned before, is when you introduced Ariok to Pinkman, and I knew it was going to lead to an alliance between Lazarus and Creepy, uh, and sort of setting that up towards the end of the game. And you guys actually getting to the end game and piecing that together and piecing together where you went wrong, uh, that was super satisfying for me. Because as, uh, as I told you, then, I did see that point very early in the campaign. i meant like,
2: this is going to be fantastic when they get there. Uh, And you got there, and it was really cool. Um, So that's something I was super satisfied with. Mm -hmm.
1: The other one is just uh, the construction of the Callum Clay mystery uh, I'm really satisfied with. Because it never got so big that it sort of took over the campaign but continue to run, like, a red thread along it. and um, uh, As I told, uh, told you guys many times, is that you'll never luck into the right answer.
0: And especially given what we were told the solution was after the campaign, yeah, it, there, there was no way that we were going to be able fig- to figure that out. So, yeah, there's
1: like uh, you need to do a lot of correct googling. You need to figure out that uh, the Isles he roamed in his heyday were the British Isles. You need to realize that the uh, the dark brood is a reference to uh, Irish uh, Irish mythology. I think it is. Uh, you need to put together that it's an old legend. Uh, you need to put together that the. Seven things. Uh, uh, the uh, seven things he slayed uh, connects to the whale meat he eats. Uh, it's like it's definitely possible to make these connections, but you have but to, you'd you know,
0: have to go on such a Google train to get
1: there. Yeah, I mean, uh, do try playing like Blackwatch or something, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it, it, it inspired a lot of that, and it's a really cruel game. Uh, do you mind telling them what, uh, telling the audience
0: at home what that game is? Uh,
1: well, Blackwatch is essentially a, or the Black Watchman, I think it's called. Uh, it's essentially a, a investigative computer game where you're trying to solve these mysteries using the very few resources the game provides to you. Everything beyond that, you have to Google. Hmm. Uh, and that includes finding like the correct chemical term uh, terms for uh, uh, for, uh, for something in particular. To find the only island uh, that you can find that on. Uh, to find the, the location where someone was killed. It's just uh, it's a very frustrating game, <laughs> but it's also very fun. Uh, uh, and it uh, teach you a lot, uh, teaches you a lot about how to run mysteries uh, if you're uh, inclined to make them really frustrating, so your players can figure them out. <laughs> all right, all right. And
0: uh, I guess uh, I've I've just got like uh, I've got I've got two more questions, and then uh, I'm gonna open it up to an interesting uh, little segment. Uh, so first, uh, this was kind of a major thing I wanted to make sure that we hit upon, and that was you said that this was gonna be a campaign where you wanted to make sure that there were
2: no loose ends. Do you think you succeeded? Well, except for the money. Except for the money. (laughs) Except uh... for
1: the money, I think I closed all the threads uh,
2: I wanted to close. There is a few open-ended ones that I'm fine with. Because they didn't need to be completely closed like uh
1: for example you never knew what happened to the other callum clay characters uh, after all this happened and i'm fine with that loose end that, that, uh,
2: that, that
0: that's an interesting mystery like that's like a what happened who knows
1: indeed it's like i i i am fairly con- uh fairly sure about what's going on there but uh, it didn't really matter in the context of the campaign I think you mostly figured out what went on with Grace, uh, which I'm happy about. Yep. Um, there's a few characters you were never sure uh, if they lived through the final confrontation or not. But I mean, if any of you asks me if they lived, I'll, I'll tell you. That's fine.
0: Just, just secure to me right now. Talaman's alive, right? Like uh, Ta- uh, Talman
1: and Grace is alive.
0: Thank goodness that's the one couple we all rooted for.:
1: Yeah, uh, they're alive, and in the years to come, they do end up in a sort of uh, they do end up in a relationship uh, after a few years. Uh. Uh, once Taloman gets comfortable enough to open up emotionally, uh, they do end up together. So if I do run the 2018 campaign uh, at some point. Uh, they're probably going to be a couple uh, at that stage.
0: But let's be... uh, But uh, Again, knowing you, you always get sidetracked with some other idea that comes up, so it might be a while. It might be. Uh, And uh, at this point, I'm going to open it up to an interesting moment. Uh, Is there just anything you want to talk about? Is there anything you want to
2: ask me as one of the players? Uh, Like, I'm going to flip the script. This is your interview now. (laughs) I'm gonna flip that question on you of is there
1: any moment you would have liked to have gone back and had we do differently?
0: Had to do differently. And I, I, this is difficult because I don't have the behind the screen view. So I can't know
2: what things were according to plan and what things were bad dice rolls. But... Uh,
0: there's not really much I would say that uh, that would be changed, at least uh, nothing I can really, like, you know, uh, really think of that I'd say, if there was one thing we could change, get rid of this, or change that, or uh, whatnot. Like, I really feel like as if everything that needed to happen did happen. Like, I really cannot think of a moment that I would say...
1: Yeah, I, I fundamentally feel that too, and it is... Uh, I think I told you this before, the campaign I finished before Centralia Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: with a few of my real-life friends. Uh, Sadly, due to my life circumstance, I had to wrap that campaign up fairly quickly, uh, which left a a lot of loose ends. So my main goal with Centralia was from the start to not have loose ends. Uh,
2: Wow. Uh, that uh, that was always sort of one of my personal goals
1: to always uh, to make sure to close the bag
2: at the end.
0: Which uh, yeah, that is definitely uh, yeah no, you hit it. Like I really do think you 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 knew what you were saying how to do and you did it. And every part of that, like from from your perspective, from like the GM perspective, I think landed perfectly. And from my perspective as a player, it, it felt like as if that needed to happen to Edgar happened to Edgar. Everything that needed to happen to Vitya happened to Vitya and so on and so forth. You know, Madeline yeah, especially got everything she needed.
1: Yeah. Chaos Priestess.
0: Chaos Priestess.
1: I did like that. As uh, I said, I'm not sure if the, uh, how much the viewers knew of this, but me throwing um, the Chaos Magic at Madeline and letting her learn that that was sort of It was a total fluke. I had a moment where I just go, like, I could do this and have it tie into the campaign. Uh, And, like, a lot of really important parts of the campaign were like that, where I just saw, like, I could make this interesting uh, if I just go off script here. I'm I'm,
0: I'm taking that with me in the mask, so...
1: Yeah, I suppose that's another thing I think uh, more DMs should just listen to, like, if your gut feeling is telling you you can improve upon the script as you're playing, run with it. You never know where it goes. I think it usually ends up very well. Uh, of course, I also have to stress the fact that uh, I have had the best players. No, like, and you know, I, 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 I'm sure most DMs will say that at sort of this point, but it's just. The way you guys roll with failure and being put into narratively interesting situations where you aren't necessarily on top, I think that especially makes this group really amazing. Um, Because I have had a lot of groups where when they get knocked down a peg, they sort of lose their air and they go, well we don't really know what to do now. It's like they almost enter this depression of Well, now we just kinda of lost. We thought we'd like earned a victory here, but we just sort of got fucked. Uh and this group never really got like that. Um I can really only think of
0: one time where this was the case and it was like the moment before the trial where we had to figure out what to do about that. That that felt like a loss to me because it was like, Oh, I didn't know what to let, do, but we had to get let's back
1: let's return to that a quick uh you were asking me if i regret something about the campaign yeah Yeah. the time leading up to the trial in Mm -hmm. hindsight i could have handled better Eh,
2: i think it went
0: well i i think like it just could have been like a little bit snappier on the pace yeah exactly like what we were doing at the end of the campaign but
1: yeah the pacing of that section was all wrong and it sort of fizzled out into nothing and i did have to save it a bit for the gm fiat of uh, the date's been moved up uh. which uh, no, i think you could, i think that
0: was still dramatic though like i think that was a good move because it does feel like as if the bad guys have just pushed the date of the trial forward so you feel unprepared and i think i'm I'm just kind of thinking about this a bit, like even though it's not realistic, like because uh, I think you you've you've told me, right that like the trial is one of those things that like because it was the first time you ever did something like that, it was a very new experience. like I think that that if if we if like if you or I were to run something like that again, I think it might be more, you know, have that surprise date show up. That surprise date shift show up, so that way it's a scramble to gather information, and they go into court very unprepared and kind of discover together the case.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I think not realistic in the slightest. But definitely, that part could have been handled better. But it sort of was saved as well and didn't really stick in in my memory because I did think the actual trial was very good.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it was it was so good and so intense. I split it into two parts on the same day.
2: <laughs> just to give people a break. Yeah. It's like we got to savor this. <laughs> yeah, well, um yeah, I was actually
1: that uh, that was uh, definitely another high point of the campaign just because as I said I didn't know how to do it, but it still sort of turned out really nice. Yeah. Uh so that's fun. Yeah. Uh, that- I've told you this before, but I always like doing things in role-playing games that I'm sort of uncomfortable with.
0: I mean, uh, especially. I mean, like, novelty is the whole, you know, somewhat the point of the hobby at times.
1: Yeah, it's sort of, I I do have this dreadful thing, you know, where uh, I'll go, this is bad and enjoying it is bad and you should feel bad for engaging in it.
2: And sort of whenever I do that, I also go like, yeah, but what if I did it? How could I make this interesting, essentially? I think there's like, as like D&D
0: and tabletop RPGs get more popular as time is going on now, I, I think there's all those like common platitudes of wisdom for GMs now. That kind of restrict every now and again what you can be capable of, and it's uh, I think that's a fun challenge, like how can I make this work, or how can I make this fun and engaging for the players?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, don't, yeah, and, and for yourself, for that matter.
0: I mean, the number of times we split the party in this podcast:
2: <laughs> Yeah,
1: uh. I mean I, I, I'll admit that was frustrating at times. Uh, really? Yeah, it's just uh I mean I think one thing that's not discussed very often, uh sadly, is the fact that when the party is split, that does put a stress on the GM.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the GM gets put in a position of okay, I do have to bounce between these two scenes, uh, and I have to keep a somewhat uh somewhat balance. Uh, uh and make it interesting for everyone and i sort of i mean i'm the sort of person who always feels kind of bad when two characters run off to do something though the other two's kind of stay behind and you go back to them like what are you guys doing and they go nothing we're just waiting and i'm just like oh i'm sorry that you showed up to my game and you're sitting for like an hour doing fuck all." There's like, a little
0: bit of a perk with the at with with the fact that we're over with, with that we're over Discord because we can like mute ourselves, take out the headphone jack, and just like have it on in the background while I go handle something else.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, there, uh, there is that benefit, but I also like I do enjoy keeping my players there and engaged. And I think if people do that too much, like walk off and fuck with other things, uh, you do lo- lose a lot of focus. So oh yeah. Um there's definitely an aspect of I mean I don't mind the party splitting up, so don't get uh don't get me wrong there. It was not like a huge like oh I was really annoyed with you. Uh it was not there were points where I was just like
2: this is increasing my workload. <laughs> because uh, I we- think I I think that's the main
1: takeaway of don't split the party is that It's a very easy decision to make for the players, but it makes the GM's workload uh, double, which is why I think uh, a lot of GMs uh, sort of smash their players uh, for that by having TPKs and whatever, Uh, just because they can't really, the back and forth gets
2: a lot.
0: Uh, looking into the future, I've been thinking about this question a lot, because uh, uh, for the audience at home, I've been running horror on the Orient Express again for a personal friend group in real life, and kind of taking some of the lessons from that as well, and whenever the party splits up, I, I, I feel this exact same thing, <laughs> but I've been kind of futzing with how to make it snappier, or how to make it still fun, and I've had... A lot of joy, because like, if the players are there and they're listening, I have found it so good to, just before a die roll needs to be made, or just before the consequences are about to occur for some action, cutting back to the other party, even if it's just for some repeat information they've already received, I, I think it does help kind of at least make it a little bit more entertaining, and I've started thinking in advance about where could they split the party.
1: Yeah, it creates a lot of like suspense and stuff. And I mean, there are parts of an adventure where I think splitting the party is very natural, and it doesn't really increase the workload. Uh, like I remember a part when Madeline, I think, and Elias went up into the vents. Was it Victoria and Elias? I can't remember.
0: No, no, no. It was it was Elias and Madeline. It was a very unconventional duo, but
1: yeah, and like that part was really suspenseful, and I don't think anyone really minded the split there. Uh, it's like mainly I, I, I'm okay with party splitting when the suspense is there and there's not just a lot of jumping back and forth, uh, to people doing uh, not very important things. Uh, uh, no, but I really, and I, just, I think th- that that's noticeable throughout the campaign that whenever you guys do split the party, I do kind of hurry to getting you back together again.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's okay. I think it's okay to kind of notice the hurrying to bring
1: the party back. I mean,
0: I'm fine with
1: it. Because essentially I think that role-playing is a group activity and just having people fuck off in different directions. And I'm just like, well, then I play with you guys on Saturday and you guys with Sunday.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just telling you now, uh, can you do me a favor? We're going to do Peru Sunday and I would really (laughs) like it if you would just split the party for that one.
2: There's nothing you can really achieve.
1: Nah, I'm gonna fuck off to Brazil or somewhere. Fuck you guys.
2: God damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, wrong boat. (laughs) Sorry, wrong boat. I'm in Chile. (laughs) Uh, Uh,
1: But yeah, so I mean, uh, it's an aspect I I enjoy. Uh, It's a sort of the constant struggle of a GM, I think, with just that saying of never split the party, where, yeah, but sometimes it makes sense.
0: And, and again, there's a bunch of other, like, GM platitudes this also applies to, but...
2: Yeah. And, I mean, I I think think a lot of those are really valid, but I'm...
1: It all comes down to having fun, right?
0: Yeah. Like, Again, part of me also thinks that we're both kind of contrarians in nature. So, oh
1: yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I I think that's very true.
0: Gotta love that statement. No, we're just both contrarians in nature. It's why I'm your friend. No, it's not. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think with that, uh, I think with that, I think we've had a pretty good ending point to kind of to kind of conclude on. Uh,
1: we're uh, both uh, contrarians. Let's end this.
0: Let's end this. <laughs> Uh, it's been a... no
2: let's no. not do that ah oh, jeez. <laughs> uh
0: but with that uh no it's been a wonderful interview and uh thank you again
1: yeah thank you it's been as I said, a great campaign and i think everyone i've been playing with is uh great and fantastic uh the fact that there's some people listening to this i think is even more oh, incredible uh, i well, hope you, you guys have enjoyed it and please like if you have listened this far, drop a comment, email writers saying what you think. Uh, what were your highlights of people. the campaign?
0: <laughs> uh, we, we might do a second post-mortem if there's like follow-ups from anybody who actually emails. Like I'm not promising it, but there might be.
2: Indeed. If
1: uh, we get more questions, I'll respond to them.
0: Yeah. Uh Oh, I, I forgot. Uh one last question, by the way. Uh so whoever is Callum Clay anyway?
2: Uh